Let's pray together before we turn back to God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your Word, as we come to you, indeed, we think of that episode in the Old Testament as Moses and the 72 ascend, and they are not just granted a sense of the vision of you, granted to see that, that sapphire floor uh, and uh, he granted this vision of, of who you are, but they also were at peace, able to eat and drink and fellowship there with you. And so, Lord, how we pray that as we come to the book of Joshua and as we come to your word, uh, Lord, that you would speak to us and that you would welcome us to yourself, uh, that in these moments we might hear not from man, who cares what man has to say, but that we would hear from you and that we might enjoy intimate fellowship with you, our triune God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in 1941, 1941, so as World War II, of course, uh, was raging, a very secret meeting was arranged and took place. So, 1941, uh, World War II was going on. There was a secret meeting arranged on board a ship, and I think it was in Newfoundland Bay, and none other than Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt. They met together aboard the ship uh, to discuss military strategy for the war ahead. And here's what you need to know about that meeting. I would have loved <laughs> to have been there. Don't you agree? Even if you don't like history uh, particularly, surely it would have been a fascinating thing to see how some of these critical moments in world history, how they go down, to see how some of these gigantic figures, and we're, come on, Churchill, Roosevelt, to see how some of these giant figures, how they interact with each other. What's that expression? Wouldn't it be great to have been a fly on the wall? It would surely be nice to be a fly on the wall. Well, surely it is the case this morning at St. Peter's Free Church. You and I get to do something infinitely better than that. Because do you see what we have in front of us this morning for consideration in Joshua chapter 5? We have another significant meeting, but wait a minute. Consider the enormity of what is before us. On one hand, who have we got? We've got Joshua. Forget Winston Churchill for a moment. We've got Joshua, you know, the, the leader of, the military leader of all Israel. And then on the other hand... Who do we see but the commander of the army of the Lord and they lock in conversation and they discuss events that are not just going to shape world history. No, no, no. They're going to discuss events that will actually shape eternal history. What do you get to do this morning with this encounter? What do I get to do at St. Peter's? We get to be flies in the wall and an infinitely better meeting, don't we? And I wonder, do you like photography? Do you like photography? Well, let me just set out how we'll approach the text uh, this morning. Um, first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the text with a wide-angled lens this morning. So we're going to, first of all, 
consider where this portion of Scripture sits in the breadth and span of God's Word. That's the first thing, wide-angled lines. And then the second thing we're going to do this morning, so two parts to the sermon, the second thing is we're going to take off that wide-angled lens and we're going to put on one of those jihugimous zoom lenses. You know the ones, don't you? Because the second thing we're going to do is we're going to zero in on this text to notice a few details that we have in front of us. So are you with me? Yes. Wide-angled lens, we'll see where it sits in the bread to span theologically of Scripture, and then zero in, that zoom lens, right in uh, to the text to notice some uh, details. So two parts, two parts to this morning's sermon. So let's make a start. And let's consider, first of all, the first of the two headings, let's consider the entrance to the sanctuary. Have we got that? Have the younger people got that as well? The first thing, the entrance to the sanctuary. Okay. Now, if you were uh, this morning asked to mention um, one of the mega themes of the Bible, a main theme of God's words, where would you go and what would you say? Christian friends, a theme that runs through the Bible, what would you say? Perhaps you might say the kingdom of God. There's a big theme of scripture, isn't it? Or you might better that in a sense. You might say covenant. Okay, that's, that's the beauty, isn't it? That's the theme that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation, another big theme. But what I need you to appreciate, if we're going to get anywhere this morning, is that another major theme in Scripture is that of land. Do we appreciate land as a main theme, a big theme, mega theme of Scripture? Just think for a moment, how does the Bible start? <laughs> how does the Bible start? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the the earth, the earth, the land, the land. And from that very point begins to unfold this theme that stretches through much of Scripture. Now, when we appreciate that land is a big theme, we might already this morning begin to recognize that what we've got in front of us is perhaps more significant than we first realized But in order for us to really properly grasp that, this is what I want us to do. I want you and I, I want us to go back in our minds for a moment to the Garden of Eden. It's not a bad place to go on a Sunday morning for feeling tired or so forth. The Garden of Eden. Now, what do we know about the Garden of Eden? We know it was a place of abundance. Oh, come on. Don't we know that? The flowers and the trees and the waters flowing, the rivers flowing, we know that. And we know that the Garden of Eden was a, was a, was a, a place of holiness. Everybody appreciate that, do they? That the, the Garden of Eden was in a sense, of course, a sanctuary. Wasn't Eden a sacred space? A place where, where God and, and man could, could dwell. Now, of course, what happened in the Garden of Eden? I think everybody in the room could spell that out. We know that man spoiled the holiness. Isn't that right? We rebelled against God. Now, listen very carefully that man from the via the eastern entrance 
of Eden. Man was kicked out. Man was exiled, wasn't he? But that's not the end of the story. Praise God that it's not the end of the story. That from that point, Genesis 3, what begins to unfold for us is something of the good news of the gospel. Indeed, I want to read this to you. Please hear it. What begins to unfold from Genesis 3 is indeed the Edenic vision of the almighty God. Do we begin to grasp? Do we? Do you see? The, what begins to unfold from Genesis chapter 3 is not just God's plan to save people or to bring them back to a localized garden. No, no, wait a minute. What begins to unfold is bigger and it's better and it's brighter than that, isn't it? What begins to unfold is God's plan to have his people one day inhabit an all-encompassing sanctuary to have them inhabit, what is it? A new heavens and a new earth, a garden. Do you see a place that Revelation chapter 22 reveals to us? It's full of trees, beauty and abundance, a place where the waters flow. Do you see, do you follow from Genesis 3 onwards this beautiful Edenic picture, this Edenic vision of the almighty eternal God? Now, if you think about the Old Testament, just for a moment, think about the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure that you can see how God points you to that Edenic vision in a couple of ways. Isn't that right? I think if we are longer, oh, a minister is always fighting time, always fighting time. One day it will not be like this. <laughs> but if we had longer, you and I could think about the temple in this regard. So I'm just asking you, do you see how, in a sense, the temple in the Old Testament, how it mirrors Eden? What's in the temple? The candelabra tree. Do you see? And the eastern entranceway to the temple. Do you see? And what about the veil? What's woven in the veil? He's guarding cherubim. Do you see, if we had longer, couldn't we think about the temple as a sanctuary, but we don't have longer? So I need to ask you, do you see that the land in the Old Testament, the land of Canaan, served the same function? I'm sure you see that, do you? From Exodus all the way to the Incarnation. Do you see, from Exodus all the way to Bethlehem, what was Canaan? Canaan was a sanctuary. Canaan was a sacred space. Wasn't it? Think of it. This place of abundance. Flowing with milk and honey. Canaan, this place of holiness where God will dwell with his people. Well, if your head isn't hurting too much because there was a lot there. And if you see that, the land is sanctuary, you will maybe also see what we need to do next. What do we need to do next? We need to work out what this portion of scripture has to say to this theme. So can I ask you to please make sure that scripture is open and have a look at Joshua 5 from verse 13. I ask you, what do you see? What do you recognize here? Let me give you one or two things to notice. Notice firstly the location that you're given in verse 13. Where did this strange meeting take place? Do you, do you notice the reference, the geographical reference? It says, near Jericho. Do you think that's a passing comment? Do you not see how significant it is? You know your history. 
Think about it. In, in Numbers 14, everybody knows it. Remember the episode with the spies going into Canaan? The 12 spies, everyone knows it. What happened after that? The people of Israel, they tried to enter the land from the south, didn't they? And what happened? They were barred. They couldn't enter the sanctuary from the south. So what happens? Do you see what happens? The people travel all the way around the land to the right bank of the Jordan to Shittim. Why, I ask you, why? That God might have his people enter the land from the eastern point. Do you see it? They're coming in from the east into the sanctuary of God. Do you see? Jericho. Then you notice, if you look at your Bible, look at verse 15 and notice what is emphasized. It's marvelous. What does this strange figure say? Off with your shoes. Isn't it? Take off those sandals. Do you see what is being emphasized? The holiness of this land. The text screaming. This is a sacred space. Off with your shoes. Do you see? This, this land is a sanctuary. And then, the last of these details. Doesn't that blow your mind? Consider who it is that Joshua meets here. Who is this? I mean, isn't it marvelous? Doesn't it blow your mind to think for a moment that just as it was in Eden and just as was woven into Solomon's temple fabric and that veil, who does Joshua meet? At the eastern point of the sanctuary, he meets not just a heavenly figure, but he meets one armed, guarding, armed with a sword. But do you not see for a moment how theologically rich this is. The people of God are entering at last into the sanctuary. Don't you see that? Is that amazing? Don't you see more? Doesn't this text immediately fill your heart, Christian friend, with gratitude? Because what do you know? <laughs> you know that one day, all by Christ, one day you are going to dwell in the land that all of this foreshadows. That's coming to you. Isn't it marvelous? One day you, Christian friend, are going to enter the full realization of God's Edenic vision. You will know that. You will see the trees. You will see the river. You will walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. And, and how, how for people like us, as despicable and sinful as you and, and me, how is that possible? You know the answer? All by Jesus. You, you know that at Calvary, it was at Calvary that the way to this heavenly sanctuary was secured for you, don't you? You know, it was at Calvary that that veil of separation was destroyed, rent. You know, what a future Christian friend you have coming to you. And all, all with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've looked at this portion of scripture with our wide-angled lens, haven't we? We've seen where it sits uh, in reference uh, to some themes. Do you remember what we were going to do? Young people maybe remember, we're going to take off the lens from the camera and replace it with one of those, you know, the huge zoom lenses that they're using at the, the football championships and so forth. Yes, remember that? Because what we need to do at this point is we need to zero in on this text into a number of details. And indeed, let me be a little bit more precise, please. What we need to do at this point is zero in on this text and address 
just three very brief questions about these verses. Three questions that we've got here. So let me give you the the second heading. (coughs) Excuse me. So we've seen what? We've seen the entrance to the sanctuary. Second, we see an encounter with the Savior. An encounter with the Savior. Now, does anyone in the room remember the 1980s and 90s TV show, Through the Keyhole? Do we remember this? I realize immediately I'm showing my age, but I gave it away earlier on to the kids, so I don't feel so bad about it. Do you remember Through the Keyhole? Perhaps there'll be some in the room who are too young to remember, and I have to say you're not missing much, I I don't think, to be honest. Uh, If you haven't seen it, it's a very simple premise through the keyhole. The presenter, what's his name? Lloyd Grossman, wasn't it? Um, He would take the viewer around a famous person's house. I don't think that he had just broken into the house. I think he had been granted uh, access to it. But he would take you, the viewer, around the house and he would take you into each room. And he would give you clues, and you had to ask, you know, you're asking yourself, who is this? Or what what would he say? Who might live in a house like this? Right, yes. But you're asking, as you're watching this, if you're on the panel, but even as you're viewing this, you're asking, wait a minute, there's the clues. Here's the clues, who is it? Now, do you not agree with me that there is a similar question hanging in the, in the, in the background here? Just think about the context for a moment with me. What, where are we, if you missed it the last few weeks? Where are we? These people have crossed the Jordan. There's ritual purity as they're coming to God. They're just about, we're going into the next part of the book of Joshua, so they're just about to hit the conquest hard before they that this figure appears. What's the question you're asking? You're asking the same question, aren't you? You're asking, who is this? Aren't you? I'm asking this. Is this just a man? Is this more? Is this an angel before Joshua? Is it, an, is it the angel of the Lord? Is it theophany? Aren't we scratching our heads to a certain degree and asking, well, like Lloyd Grossman, the scripture here uh, gives us some clues to the identity of this enigmatic figure before Joshua. Can I just point, them, point you to them? First of all, look at the response of Joshua in verse 14. Please have a look. I think this will actually depend on the translations of the Bible that we've got in our hands. Some of the translations might obscure it slightly, but the idea here is very much that Joshua falls to the ground in worship before this figure. So not so much the idea of just respect or reverence, but this is the idea of falling in in praise, falling in worship. Come on. Like, what does that suggest to us in here? What do we know? Ah, that suggests to us a divine presence, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Anything else, to worship anything else under the sun is sin. So there's a clue But then notice again, look back to verse 15 and and notice again and think about what Joshua is told to do. Now, we we looked at it, we mentioned it. What was it? Take off your shoes. Oh, come on, think about that. Take off your shoes. Take take off your sandals. Now, what does that indicate? How would you, if you were to answer that, what does that indicate to to you? You might say, this seems as though Joshua is being encouraged 
You know, as if the message is, I'm going to be with you as I was with Moses. Take off your shoes like he was instructed to do. And that's fine and that's good and I think that is true. But isn't there more here? I mean, what do we know, friends? We know all the way throughout God's word such intense displays of holiness, such de- demands for respect in the face of holiness. What does that indicate to us? We know that that appears with manifestations of a divine presence. We think about Isaiah, Isaiah 6, the sense of holiness. Why? Because God was there, this marvelous vision. Or Mount Sinai, the holiness. Or, yes, the burning bush. But if you're still not picking up the clues, if you're still not convinced, I would long for you to notice the close identification here with God himself and with the authority of God himself. I think we've got to appreciate this. That elsewhere in the Bible, um, if, you, uh, if you have an appearance of the angel of the Lord, not God, but the angel of the Lord, the text very often is very, very careful to draw a distinction between God and the angel and the authority of God and the authority of the angel. You may be with me already. If not, let me give you an example. So Exodus 32 See, everybody knows what's going on in Exodus 32. Moses is up Sinai, isn't he? He's encountering God, and God is promising to go with Moses. Listen to what God says, though. He says, I will send my angel with you. Do, do you see the idea, the authority? There's a very, it's very careful to draw that distinction between the authority of God and the authority of the angel. What do you have in front of you? you, you it's not just that you don't have that. You have the opposite of that. So this text here is doing everything to focus on the authority of this individual. The spotlight is shining on this individual. Look at it in verse 14. He says, now I have come. Do you see the authority? Literally, in the Hebrew, it reads this. Listen, for I, I am the commander. Do do you see the authority? Do you you pick up on it as somebody else says, only the very Logos himself could speak with such authority. And if you put the pieces together, isn't it so easy for us to establish who this is before? How would you answer it? Who is this before Joshua? It is none other than the Lord. Indeed, who we have here. It's most likely an appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of the very second person of the Trinity himself. Who is standing there? But the very Son of God himself. Isn't that amazing? And does it not immediately remind you, Christian friends, of the extent, the magnitude of what has been done for you? I am going to ask you all a very simple question. There is a question as a Christian that you should ponder each and every day of your life, and it's this. Who is it exactly who has died for your sin? A simple question. Doesn't it deserve to be pondered every day of your life? Who died for your sin, your iniquity? You know the answer. You're not going to say a spiritual leader. You're not going to say just a caring soul. No, consider it such his love for you individually, such as his love for you personally, that the eternally existing God 
has taken upon himself flesh in order to secure your very salvation. Who is it that bore your sin in his body on the tree? Who did it? Not just a spiritual leader, but the very one who appeared to Isaiah. You know, the very one whose hem of his garment fills the whole of the temple. The one who is here before us in Joshua. Who bore your punishment? Who bore it? The very same one very same one who formed the earth itself. And second question, what has this figure, we can establish who he is, but what has he come to do? Why is he here before Joshua? What has he come to do? At this point, let me just take a breather and let me just lay an idea before you. I'll set it out before you. And what I want you to do is just engage with it. I want you to to consider what you think of this idea. And I read it a number of times this week. So I'll read it here to you. And you just engage with it. See what you think. So some commentators think this. That here, this figure has arrived to assume control of Joshua's troops. Does everybody follow the idea? So this one, as he reveals himself, do you see how he, what he calls himself? Reveals himself the commander of the army of the Lord. By doing that, what he's doing is revealing his intention to take control of the people, to take control of the armies of Israel as they're just about to march out to Jericho. Okay, there's the idea. You with me? I, I want to suggest an alternate understanding, but to get there... I just want to very, very briefly speak to the, the young folk who are up in the balcony and, and those down here. I just want to do something different with you guys. So you'll listen for a moment. Um, I want to give you something to do this afternoon, okay? I don't know what your plan is for your afternoon. It's just about to radically tr- change. Okay, it's all right. It's going to take you three minutes, okay? But I'm going to give you a Bible reference just now. And what I want you to do this afternoon is to take a little bit of time out and I want you to read it. I want you to find it and I want you to read it. Your mums and dads will remember the Bible reference if you don't. Okay, so it's, it's 2 Kings chapter 6. You don't have to look it up just now. 2 Kings 6. You got it? It's not even, now listen, this is how nice I am. <laughs> it's not even the full chapter. It's just the middle section. Okay, so I want you this afternoon, 2 Kings 6, to find it. It's awesome, which is the reason that I want you to read it. But I want to give you a little taster of it just now. Okay, so you understand this is what's happening. We'll all follow this. There are bad guys, and they're called the Arameans. Okay, bad guys, horrible guys. And what they're trying to do is they are trying to kill the man of God by the name of Elisha. We've heard of Elisha, haven't we? We've got Elisha, yeah. What they've done, they've surrounded the city. Can you imagine how scary that would be? They're trying to kill him. They've surrounded the city. And everyone, like honest, everyone is panicking. Everyone is freaking out. Especially Elisha's servant. And he is panicked and he doesn't know what to do. So what's going to happen? What Elisha does is he prays to God. And this is what he asks. He asks God to show his servant how things really are. That's the prayer. You follow it? Lord, show him how things really are. Open his eyes that he might see how things really are. Now, listen, guys, I'm going to read to you what happens. You get a taste of this for later on. And God opened the servant's eyes. Listen. And he looked and he saw the hills 
full of horses and chariots of fire. Do you see how amazing it is? A spiritual army and an army that is ablaze. God's army, God's army on fire. Now, yes, for the rest of us in here, surely we understand as we come to Joshua chapter 5, that that is what is in view. Don't we get it? Who is this figure? Is he just a commander? Has he just come to take control of the, the forces and of men? No, we know it's more than that, don't we? We know he has come to take control of, he comes with a heavenly army, an unbeatable, angelic force. Yes, we know that. But this morning, I want to remind you, Christian friends, that incredible army, that still functions that incredible angelic force right now, the 21st century, even in Dundee, perhaps, that great angelic force, it still exists. And is that not important for the church to remember? You know what we're like, don't you? Isn't it the case that the church in the West just now, we are far too intimidated by the world? Isn't that the case? we look at this conflict that we are in just now and we, we look at ourselves, we look at St. Peter's and we see ourselves as being weak and hopeless and pathetic and we look at the world and the hold that Satan has on the world. We say, this is too big, too big a, a, a foe. And we come to Joshua chapter 5 and what is it that God is reminding you and me about this morning? That the one we follow is the one who commands the very forces of heaven itself. That the one we follow is the king, the ruler over all. That the one you follow this morning, who is he? What has he said to you? Do you remember he rebukes his church? Is he rebuking us this morning? Remember what he says? Do you not get it? Do you not understand that I can simply ask my father and he will put at my disposal what more than, more than 12 legions of angels. Should it not shatter our pessimism as Christians? Should it not fill us full of confidence for this battle ahead? Who do we follow but the commander of the army of the Lord and at Calvary? He has already determined the outcome of this war. And then we close with the third question. We've thought about who this is. We've thought about what does he come to do? He comes as the commander of the army of the Lord. And then the last, the last, last question is, is, what does this figure require? What does he require? Um, I am not sure if I've mentioned this to you or not previously. But um, when we were south of the border and we were in the, our previous charge, Catherine and I, uh, on a Sunday morning, would face about a 40-minute drive uh, in a church from where we were living uh, through London in the centre of London. Maybe about 40 minutes on a good day, significantly longer on the way back with the traffic as people get out of their beds. Uh, so 40 minutes, 45 minutes, something like that to get to church. So what we would do each Sunday morning is we would put on a sermon as we're traveling in uh, to the center of Lund because we're super spiritual, uh, people know. But we would, listen, we would listen to a sermon as we're traveling in. 
you know, 35, 40 minutes. I will remember one incident for the rest of, of my life. And we put the, I don't know if I've talked to you about this or not. Forgive me if I have. But uh, Catherine and I put the kids in the car and we, we go in. The traffic's quite bad. We're listening to the sermon. We travel in 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and we arrive at church. And the, the chap, preacher, still going. He's still going. We've traveled in 40 minutes, 42 minutes. And I'm parking up, and I'll remember exactly forever what he said, what I heard. He said, um, and dear friends, this is my American accent, so excuse me, I will not offend anyone, I'm sure. But dear friends, uh, all that was by way of introduction. <laughs> and I looked over at my wife and said, what? We better have to go around the block a few more times before we go. To a 40-minute sermon introduction. Well, don't panic. Though we are indeed closing with this, I do honestly believe that in a sense, everything that has been said and everything that we have looked at thus far in the text is building up to this final thought, this final moment. You must get it because surely everybody in the room must have noticed how bizarre an interaction Joshua had with this man. Did it not strike you as unusual? Please, could you look at it again? Please find verse 13. First of all, notice what Joshua says to him. Do you see, do you see the essence of it? <clears throat> Basically, Joshua says, who are you going to fight for? Who, are you going to fight for the, uh, the Canaanites? Or are you going to fight for me? That's the essence of the question. Now, that's already, we can maybe appreciate that. Look at verse 14. Again, I suppose it depends what translation you've got. But the answer here, what is it? <laughs> Neither. Do you know what? It's, it's not neither. The word here is just no. Who are you going to fight for? Are you going to fight for the, the Canaanites? Are you going to fight for me? No. Wrong question, Joshua. Do you, do you see what's happening? You see what's happening here, don't you? Joshua here at this point is being taught a lesson, a lesson about following God. It's as though he expects God, this figure, to fall in behind him and his leadership. And what is God saying? He says, no, no. You need to learn your place. If you are going to be successful, Joshua, if you're going to lead your people on, no, 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 I'm not following in behind you. You need to follow in behind me. Do you see? You need to, you need to learn to follow and follow the Lord. Surely it's the case. Surely it's the case. There's a lesson in that for all of us who are Christians in the room here. I mean, is it not? Is it not absolutely the case that you and I all too often are like Joshua at that point? What do we do, Christian friend? We make our plans, don't we? We've got our ideas, and at best, we try to mobilize God to come in behind us, to serve us as we charge on ahead. We try to marshal God to help us out. And you see, we have to learn our place as Christians, it is so difficult, isn't it? That whether we are elders of the church, whether we are the head of our home, whether we are neither of those things, Christian friend, we have to learn a difficult lesson. We have to learn the lesson of submission. 
you and I have to learn to follow, follow, follow the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a lesson there for Christians. But I close this sermon by speaking to you if you are not a child of God. And if you are not born again this morning, indeed, I would implore you today to do as Joshua does here. He must have noticed that he was blind to the identity. He didn't know who this figure was. He's scratching his head blind. And then it changes, doesn't it? Do you see how it changes? He learns his lesson. He takes his rebuke. And what does Joshua do but falls and bows. You notice in the text, he immediately acknowledges the supremacy, the sovereignty, the lordship of this one, and he follows him. And if you are not a Christian this morning, I want you to see in that what you need to do. And I don't mean what you need to do later in your life. See in that what you need to do right at this moment. Hear me when I tell you that Jesus of Nazareth, he is the almighty, eternal God, Jesus of Nazareth more, is the only savior of souls. And if you do as Joshua does here, bow, follow, worship, yes, you will be in an instant forgiven, declared righteous. You will be redeemed and cleansed. But I tell you, it's even better if you do as Joshua does here, fall, bow, worship. And what will happen one day is that the commander of the army of the Lord, he will lead you on and he will lead you into the true, the heavenly sanctuary. You come to Christ this morning, one day he will take you into the garden. He will take you into the paradise of God. What on earth are you waiting for? You come to Jesus, you do as Joshua does. You fall, you bow, you follow, you worship the Lord. Princess, bow and let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your goodness to your people. We are enemies. We were dismissed, exiled, and yet you have done all things to reconcile your people to yourself. So we praise you that at Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ for us has waged war, that the Lord Christ has come out victorious, and to Christ are all the spoils of that victory. Lord God, we long for the name of Christ to be praised. Would you please take to yourself those who were until this day rebellious against you, that your name might be honored. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.